hail our fair Riverdale. Register. In the bunker. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Riverdale Register in the bunker. My name is Caitlin. My name is John, and we have a special guest with us today. Uh, Introduce yourself. Hi, my name is Adam Sass, a YA author and uh, sometimes co-host of the podcast Slayer Fest 98. Slayer Fest 98 is, is uh, the brainchild of uh, Ian Carlos Crawford, uh, Twitter darling, Instagram darling too. He started this podcast uh, a few years ago to ambitiously go through every episode of Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Uh, and he's, we've done plenty of offshoot, kind of tackling things in uh, the Whedon verse a little bit. Sometimes we'll do... Uh, do like special episodes on Rise of Skywalker or Avengers Endgame. You know, we kind of do things that kind of feel close where both he and I are both co-hosting um, a sort of a summertime spinoff of Slayer Fest that'll be focusing on uh, the X-Men movies. And then he'll be with um, Anthony Oliveira, be co-hosting one on the X-Men animated series on Disney+. Plus. So we're very excited to jump into that. But really just it's Ian's show and he has a, a rotating sort of Scooby gang of uh, frequent co-hosts. I'm one of them. Yeah, he's uh, lately built quite a fun following. He's had plenty of people from the show on. He just interviewed uh, Chris Carpenter. And actually, he, the way he came to, to Chris Carpenter was he interviewed uh, Stacey Abrams first, so, uh, who is a major Buffy fan. So it was a huge, he was able to get like 15 minutes of uh, Stacey Abrams' time, and she was obviously fire like she is at everything see everybody was like super excited about that and, and cordelia chase was one of our favorite characters and that got crystal carpenter's attention and so again that was I, every everybody over at slayer fest is, is a huge cordelia fan. i love cordelia i started like watching buffy maybe you know a couple of months ago we haven't gone through the whole series we kind of stopped uh me and ian were watching it my ian we stopped to like watch a million other things, but John has been pressuring me to watch Buffy for like our entire friendship. I wouldn't so, call it pressuring. I would call I, it relentlessly bullying. Right, right. <laughs> yeah, so yes. much better. In the bunker. So I'm a huge, huge Buffy fan. I'm an even bigger Twin Peaks fan. So my relentless bullying is like you got to watch Twin Peaks because I, I, first of all, it's like it's. 30 episodes on Netflix, there you go. Um, but again, that's. I, but I digress. I'm not going to pressure your audience here, who's probably very familiar with Twin Peaks, since Riverdale is, is quite a Twin Peaks ancestor. Well, it's so funny because it's like every single person I think we have on the podcast talks about Twin Peaks. Um, yeah. We just had John's sister, who's a TV writer, yeah. um, on The Walking Dead, among other things. The Walking Dead, World Beyond, among other things. Her like last like one full thing was... Uh, she was rewatching Twin Peaks of Return. And so I have not watched that yet. I've watched Twin Peaks like on and off, like here and there. I wouldn't yeah. call myself like a huge fan, but I love David Lynch in general. I don't know if you know, because I know that you're not totally caught up with Riverdale yet, but they did last week a David Lynch themed episode that was so not actually the theme. Um, <laughs> so, they did miss the yeah. mark. We, we well, the thing that. is, is- it, it's all David Lynch themed like Riverdale is a David Lynch themed show, in my opinion. Like right. it, it's I feel obviously... like Lynchian was on the pitch doc for Riverdale. Mm-hmm, exactly. Yeah. So yes, of course. I'm interested how that would go because I know Psych did a Twin Peaks uh, parody. I've ago. seen that one. Yeah, the Psych episode good. where they go to like dual spires, but it's dual it's, spire. like, it's all wholesome yep. and like lovely. 
Oh, it's wonderful. And it's, it's so it was like, so before Twin Peaks, the return was like a, a twinkle in, in Lynch's eye. Like this was the only, this was like 2011 or 2012, I want to say. Like, and it was, um, and it was like the only time anybody had even started to bother to like get back into that fandom. Like it was, it was like Twin Peaks fandom was like laid low for a while hibernating. And that was like the first, like, oh my God, it's coming back. Like we got all the faces and all the people, like they got everybody back. And, you know, uh, Matt Shamick has obviously been working constantly. So everybody was quite familiar with her. But um, yeah, I mean, you're bringing back in a lot of like familiar faces. To that, and uh, It was just, it was my only psych episode I ever watched. Imagine <laughs> actually directs uh, this week's episode of Riverdale. So she's uh, the one she directs next week. Yeah. John, I don't know if I was supposed to say that because I know that you like to say that. I, but, <laughs> but no, that, I just know that we're going to be releasing this after that episode airs. Oh, well, Ooh. then, as we all know, last week, <laughs> Madchen directed In the Bunker. I can't believe I didn't know about this podcast, though, Adam, because it sounds like it's made for me. Uh, yeah, it's if very, you're very much. you were. Um, yeah, we're just about to the end of season, so I'm not for people who haven't seen it, but word of that moment at the end of season six. Um, so Season yeah, six? <laughs> season six, yeah. Oh, boy. Does Buffy yeah. die? She no, dies. No, no. Buffy it, does it's, not it's die like, in season six. There we go. How about that? She dies. I know she dies at least once because You've she comes seen, back. She died in whole. season one. You've seen her die at least once. Dead I know, but like one. she, she comes back, and it's like a whole thing. And but like, doesn't yeah. she die again? And it's like they're great. Yeah. See, the problem is you're you're asking these questions instead of watching more episodes of Buffy. There I know go. you're right. You're right. You're well, right. maybe the podcast can be sort of an intro back into that. It can kind of I, the the, I the the guests that Ian gets are just have such an infectious enthusiasm, um, as I'm sure you guys have here, and that I think is a big part of. Uh, getting people either back into something, revisiting something they maybe started for a little bit, but a little bit of a, like a curator, sort of a guide back into that world. So um, I, I love these types of podcasts, I think so much like this one and the Buffy one is just, it's a nice way to just, um, it's good for the mega fans to kind of go through the details. It's good for like people who haven't really casually seen it to maybe have a renewed appreciation. I think that's just, well, it's funny. We have a couple of people who say that they don't watch Riverdale anymore, but they do listen to the podcast, <laughs> which I think is so funny because I'm like, but we are so like niche with like our references to things in the episodes. And we like riff off of just like the most insane, like little tiny details of things. And I'm like, I really hope people who listen to this and don't watch Riverdale anymore get it and enjoy it. But yeah, yeah I mean, I Oh, before we listen, before we did this podcast, I listened to like a ton of recap uh, podcasts and like TV fan stuff. So I totally get that. Like super fun. It's fun yeah. for me still. I love it. That, see, that's what I would do with, if, if there was a, maybe there is, I'm sure there's one for everything, but if there was like a Desperate Housewives podcast, I would do that because <laughs> I've seen the season one, I'm like obsessed, but then like I lost it season two, like a lot of people. Um, yeah. But I, my favorite thing to do would just be randomly, don't plan it. I just check back in the middle of each season just to see, like, they, and every time I went back, it was always just, like, night and day different. I don't know what, you couldn't even track anything that was going on. So I would very much like to hear someone else talk about it versus maybe see it. 
I love Desperate Housewives because I love mystery. And even yeah. when the show is like bonkers ridiculous with like all the soapiness, which is like kind of the point, I love that they always have like this really like, I don't know if it's always like super well constructed. I guess that depends like per each season. But like usually it's just like super like bonkers and they leave really great clues for you to find in like every episode. And I oh, just, yeah. I really enjoy that. So maybe yeah. I'll rewatch well, Desperate Housewives. That one was a good one that my mom would have on around dinner time. And I would just come mm-hmm. and be like, what's happening right now? It's like, oh, well, like he's blind now. It's like, oh, do you think he's going to be blind forever? Probably not. All right, cool. And then I would leave the room. Carlos? Yeah. I, yeah. I, feel like, I feel like Twin Peaks had it not been like unceremoniously canceled and had like other creators than Lynch like stepped in and sort of shepherded it if, it if it had just stayed a mega hit like to, to the point where it had been allowed like seven full 22 episode seasons would have become that it would because in season two of twin peaks it really does start to get into that it loses the thread it loses the thing that made it interesting right away but it is still really good and fun and interesting but just in this total bonkers lost the thread way yeah yeah i think that's kind of like desperate houses after like the initial mystery is over it's sort of like Okay, well, what do we do now? But it's at the also, same time, you know, Riverdale. Uh, it, then it becomes Riverdale. But at the same yeah. time, it's super fun all the way through, even when the mystery is like not as um, not as central to like what's actually going on with like the friends, which is kind of like Riverdale when right. it's not when it's not really just about like these four women realizing that they don't know the other one as well as they thought they did or don't know you know, the, the perfect friend as well as they thought they did. I think that's really interesting, mm. which is like Jason yeah. awesome, actually. Now that I'm thinking about it. He's the perfect I, boy, secrets, etc. The Riverdale pilot is just so like, it's a wonderful amalgamation of all of these different, like very classic mystery show storylines. Like it, there's a lot of just like, Ooh, this perfect person, but you didn't really know. I mean, it's, just, it's great. I mean, it's, it's like great stuff. It's like, it's, it's a, it's a perfect Rosetta Stone for just any type of mystery show. It's it just, almost just, would be derivative if it weren't for the other aspect that is all coming through the lens of, of of remixing these classic Archie archetype characters into those other archetypes. That's a perfect yeah. re- that's a perfect word, remix. Like that's what it is. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. I was just thinking about like what the thesis because I was writing about Riverdale today which is one of my favorite things to do, obviously. But I was writing about it today, and I was trying to think about what the thesis of the show was. And I guess the thesis of the show is sort of like all these suburban mysteries, where it's like everything seems perfect on the surface, and yet because it seems so perfect, that just leaves more room for like darkness to seep through, and how that could kind of play into the mystery that we're following in season four. But... Now, now and again, I realize that, like, the longer Riverdale goes on, the less perfect Riverdale itself, like, the town seems. So I don't know. I'm. It's just an interesting yeah. thought. That's, it's because it's about, like, um, like, if you look at old noir movies, like, there's, there's like, kind of two types of noir. And that's why, like, I think one of the more enduring types of, uh, of, of movie for me to watch you know personally is you go back and look at Hitchcock's Shadow of a Doubt like I think that versus something that's a more traditional noir like a hard-boiled the city is terrible and so is the detective and so is the lady and so is the villain <laughs> like every like it's a very like everybody is who they seem to be and then they just get worse on top of that 
But then like you have Shadow of the Doubt. Was that the was that a name of a Riverdale episode? Am I crazy? Why does that sound so? You know what? That'd be very great if it was because they would owe a lot to that. I guess I think even Lynch owes a lot because it was it was Hitchcock's one of his favorite movies. I mean that was a movie that was this idyllic California suburb Santa Rosa and it was. there we go. Great. And you had, it's a classic. It's a classic. And it's this teenage girl. And she's a little kind of, you know, feeling a certain way about life. She doesn't, you know, she needs excitement. She's in this sleepy town. And then comes her beloved Uncle Charlie into town. And he's the secret merry widower murderer guy. And then she just, she gets wrapped up and solves the crime. And it's like, a, it's a, I think it's like the first, I think it's like post-war. It's like 45. Like it's just right after the war ended. It's all very... The war's over, we're good, suburbia, get back to your track homes. And then it's just <laughs> this like nightmare. It takes this girl. Like if you haven't seen it, it's a fabulous movie. And it, it definitely is Lynchian, Blue Velvet, Twin Peaks, all the way up to Riverdale, definitely. Like is just this sort of like disaffected teen sees the rot in the sleepy town and is the only one who can solve it. And that episode is it's uh chapter thirty-three, and it's the twentieth episode of the second season, and it's about Sheriff Mineta is in it. Um, I think the town. Oh, it's on about fire. the town is literally on fire. I think that might be the riots. Elsewhere, Betty turns to Shell for help when she notices when she has a suspicion about the black hood and a mysterious message causes tension. That so could I think be any episode in that's, season two. That that's could be <laughs> mo- that's most of season two. <laughs> that's I how they that's... used to write TV guides. Like they were just like. In this Riverdale episode tonight, Cheryl's mean to someone and there's mystery. Like, it's just, it's like <laughs> In the bunker. So one thing that uh, we brought you on the podcast for, obviously, actually happens in season two. Cheryl in the Sisters of Quiet Mercy. Mm-hmm. And Adam, why don't you talk a little bit about why we thought that you might be someone that we could discuss this particular plotline with. <laughs> well, so my debut young adult novel, Surrender Your Sons, comes out in September, and it is conversion therapy camp uh, escape adventure story. So it's, it's a little closer probably in tone to the Cheryl plotline than, say, um, our, our, our true-to-life memoir like Boy Race would be, which is a little, it's going to follow a, a different tone. So in, in Surrender Your Sons, my book, there's young teen Connor Major, who is uh, abducted from his home in sort of suburban farm town area, and suddenly is in this island, this, this remote island in, in Central America, where basically a, a Christian mission has set up a conversion therapy camp there and has been operating quite uh, unimpeachably for half a century, basically. It's one of these things where it's based off of a real camp that is now defunct and there's there's a movie about it showtime made it's a documentary uh they made in 2014 that really inspired the book it's called kidnapped for christ and it is a doc about a real camp called the Escuela caribe which was in the dominican republic which is described quite literally as a dumping ground for wealthy evangelical parents and american wealthy evangelical parents would it, it, it was not just conversion therapy for LGBTQ kids. It was also for if you had any sort of major problem with your, if they, if they had a, if they had an issue with uh, substance use, if they were a delinquent in any way, like, so the, it was some sort of like, I don't want to deal with my kid anymore. Like you, this camp was a sort of solution. And it was the, the documentary is harrowing. It is, you know, just, you know, the, the kids are literally 
snatched out of bed and put on a plane and taken out of the United States. They're under 18. They have no say in the matter because their parents sent them there. So that's what happens really in this, which is you have a bunch of, uh, you have a, you know, my main character, Connor, meets a whole dozen group of various diverse LGBTQ kids who have been there much longer than he has to kind of show him the ropes. And it's really an old fashioned prison escape movie, except it's, you know, queer teens and it's a conversion therapy camp. And the part of it that I think y'all like here is not only is it an escape story, it's a mystery. So there's uh, very clearly when they get there, it's evidence that the camp has been covering up terrible crime that has been committed for about 20 years ago. And this, no one has ever been brought to justice. And there's sort of a mystery surrounding it. And anybody who has questions about it is very quickly shut down and moved away and no one can talk about it. And, you know, all the campers sort of start to come to Connor with like little clues. And uh, I know this much about what's going on. And so there, it's not just a let's escape. It's, let's find out what this crime is, let's get evidence, and let's shut them down completely so that when we escape, no one else can ever come back here either. So I that's, love that. the, that's the book. That sounds so unbelievably compelling. And also, you know, equal parts, obviously, you know, you have the fun heist, not heist, I guess, the fun it's escape. The great escape, yeah. The great escapism yeah, great escape. yeah. of it. But also, I mean, obviously it's rooted in something real, which makes it absolutely terrifying. When did that camp from Kidnapped for Christ, when did that actually shut down? So by the time the movie made it out, it was already shut. It was about 2012. So, oh my God. Um, That's so was, soon, though. It was like, recent. So recent. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Are they and really? Wait, are these things really over overseas, international? I always thought they were like out in the woods somewhere, not like an island in the Dominican Republic. No, you see, I mean, so I mean, so that one specifically was. I mean, it was. I mean, if you watch it, and and that was sort of the drama of me writing this was. It's this. It's lost. It's the Jurassic Park island. It's like this jungle, Lord of the Flies. Like, I mean, it's it's like you bring people. I mean, the whole idea of this camp and then in the camp in my book is to, um, you know, you, you've gone away from your nature. So we're bringing you back to nature. And it's a culture shock. We're going to, you've been too coddled by TV and movies and everybody's saying it's okay and the internet and da, da, da. So we are going to snatch you right out of that. And you are going to go into a place that doesn't have running water, that does not have electricity. If here's your phone, it doesn't work. Like it's, it's one of those things where it's, it's so disconnected. And the idea is to culture shock, isolate. And then if you watch the documentary, there's, there's all sorts of hullabaloo. They actually interviewed the camp counselor. I mean, they, they interviewed the people running the place, I guess, under the pretense of like, we're going to show it off how great it is. But um, it was, they were interviewed and they were like, no, yeah, this is uh, it shocks the kids. And then they rethink their lives and then, you know, and it's horrifying in how ordinary they treated in the bunker. It's really the horror, the suburban horror of my book is these are people that, uh, some of the people perpetrating this are people that Connor has known his whole life, suddenly just turning them and just saying, well, it's just, it's, it's very simple. You're here until we say so. Like, and it's just, and, and you see how the coldness that's at play in that. And so when I think about horror, I do always think about this movies like uh, Rosemary's Baby or something where like everybody's suddenly in on it or, mm-hmm. you know, these people that you trust it are just like you can't just, just so casually ruining you. And I think especially 
in the last four years that's very it's become accidentally more prescient of how can you sit there and be okay with like all the like and, and just seeing how cool people are with very horrifying things um, yeah yeah and that's a big part of that as well I think that, yeah, I think that for me, I'm a big horror fan. And I think that some of the movies that really stick with me the most are like Rosemary's Baby, where, you know, she comes into the room and all these neighbors and everything Ugh. who you thought, I mean, obviously you thought maybe, you know, shady business was happening with them, but obviously they're all there. They're all like, yeah, standing over this like bassinet and they're like, we were complicit in your, you know, essential rape and this is uh, this is yeah. for the greater good and yeah. And the doctor, like she can't, she like escapes, mm. gets to the doctor. The doctor, like it's one of those things where it's just that that suffocating. Um, there's nowhere to go, and that, I mean, and that's an, another big reason why why I wrote this was uh, because I wanted to show because a lot of you know, and this is nothing against anything that already exists, but a lot of queer stories, um, of queer victory stories, are usually. Um, you know, a straight parent or, or, or a straight guardian or, or a straight best friend, you know, kind of maybe comes and saves the day. And what I wanted with this was to be, it is so absolutely isolated. Every every adult person in the story cannot be trusted and is not coming to help you. So like this, this group of 12 have to have no choice. Like either they do it or they're here, um, have to get out. And so that's really... That was the exciting thing for me was to show like, okay, well, how do we, um, on another chance, it's also like, this is how I feel the LGBTQ community, community builds. Like, this is how you get, they all have varying points of view. Some of them have been there for like almost a year. Some of them it's their first day. And, you know, there, there needs to be sort of a, you see this sometimes in the queer community where there is sort of a, a stratification of who is suffering more. And then you do need to like, listen to other voices. You do need to understand that like, while you have gone through this, someone else has gone through way more and has a much better understanding of what they're up against and, and the listening that's involved with that. So I, I found that a very exciting idea to just say there's not going to be a, a parent who suddenly changes their mind and has a change of heart and swoops in with the boat and gets them all out. Like it is just you have to leave on your own and that's it. Have you seen, I imagine you have, but have you seen Boy Erased? And I think there's another one, yeah. but I can't think of it. Um, I haven't read the book, but I saw the film. Um, mm. And I was kind of surprised by the the mundane, not mundane, I don't, I don't know if that's the right word, but yeah, how the, the program seemed so, um, you know, it was in like a church basement. It was all kind of like, it felt very much like Sunday school, but like not even, you know, like in a cafeteria, very like office building setting and how just methodical, mundane and regular like that seemed It was like to a strip me. mall. It was yeah, just like, like a hey, strip just mall. go to yeah. your local dentist. It was like going to a dentist. It was like a doctor's office. It was very, I mean, I did find that very, I mean, because for the most part, most places you'll find it. So um, uh, Garrett Conley, the author um, of the memoir, I, I interviewed him and uh, he was very kind. He blurred this book and so you know so yes I'm very familiar with that and he's been a very wonderful resource into uh this and, and he's been very clear saying that you know you know his book Boy Erased his story that's his story and he's saying there's uh, there's there's multiple different ways to experience conversion therapy and to not take that as like maybe the 
the be all end all, but, but most places that perform conversion therapy in a facility are in, in these sort of liminal spaces that are just um, neither here nor there. They could be anywhere. They're your next door thing. And that, that's horrific on its own. And that was a, one of the more effective parts of the movie I felt was how bland the surroundings mm-hmm. were. I mean, it was just, it was a, you know, how, how, you know, unremarkable. I mean, it's just these horrifying things happening next door. Yeah. Um, and so definitely the choice to make Surrender Your Sons on a, a dramatic island with jungle and you know, boats and waterfalls and, you know, and, and the, and the ocean and everything like that, that definitely was a, was a choice to go as, you know, far in the opposite of that as possible. And, uh, miseducation of Cameron Post probably is what you're yes. um, thinking yeah, yeah. of as well. Uh, that, that was another one that was great. That was, um, that was a little more like team building and, uh, you know, let's get out of here together kind of thing. So I, I did love that film as well and the book is great um and uh yeah so the interesting thing and that garrett always talks about is that conversion therapy does not necessarily have to be a camp and it doesn't even necessarily have to be a facility um conversion therapy really is just i mean if you have a an oppressive parent who is putting conditions on you living at home you know, and you have to act a certain way. That on itself is conversion therapy. I mean, it's these you're because you see people um, experience sort of different levels of that same trauma. It's and that's why I think these stories, even if you've never been like taken to a big traumatic place while these things are happening, it's still very identifiable because there is this very Harry Potter umbrage, sort of just like this super oppressive person trying to control every facial tick you have. And how that, and, and that's why I think as far as Potter goes, like that's my, by far my favorite book. I know everybody dumps on it, but I just think it's such a terrifying, I mean, it's, it's not a hot take. I mean, people find her very terrifying, but she's such a terrifying character. And a lot of that does lead into a lot of the professors that you see um, in, in my book. It's, it's just a whole island full of umbrages. It's so weird that you say that because literally like two days ago, I was just watching Order of the Phoenix. Yeah. Order of the Phoenix. Yeah. Yeah. I literally was just watching it and I didn't realize that Umbridge wasn't a death eater because I know nothing about Harry Potter because I saw like every movie <laughs> once. So I assumed she was like a Voldemort, um, like lackey, like kind of in disguise. Mm-hmm. And I realized that this whole time I had like a very deep misunderstanding of like what her deal was. And it's actually so much more disturbing now to find out that she is like a part of the existing establishment yeah. as opposed to like uh, anything with like Voldemort or whatever. And yeah. I think that's so relevant to today where evil is not necessarily like the big bad person, but just the people who are kind of complicit and I guess spreading or wanting to suppress like the truth. And I think that's so fascinating. And she's a great character, I think. In the bunker. So as like a, as an author, I know we have a couple of people who listen to the podcast who do want (laughs) to write books, who write fan fiction and stuff like that. But so you said that this is where you got the idea from, from this documentary or partially inspired by it but what was like your first step like to getting this book published I know when I spoke to you about the book you hadn't even like gotten I don't think a publisher yet so it was just like this amazing like idea but it wasn't actually you know like a like a I think it was a finished book but I'm not sure if it was if it was sent anywhere yet right 
Manuscript. Yeah, there we go. (laughs) It's um, it's been a journey. It's really been um, and you know, here's the thing: like everybody's publishing journey is like very, very different as it is in film, and you know, it's 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 just very interesting that way. So my journey to getting this published was about seven years. Oh my um, god! First started writing it, Um, but. Listeners, if if you're feeling like it's going to be another seven years for you, take heart. I, I took the longest road to get there. I, <laughs> it was my first. It, technically, this was my first book I ever wrote, but I wrote a vastly different version that had to be gut renovated six or seven more times over the years. And so, really, the book that people are going to read is uh, about a few years old. So, okay. yeah. So I so to get you know to get started, you really have to have like a finished book. And I would recommend having a book that you love so much. You're so upset. I mean, again, I've lived with this book every day since early 2013. So, and I'm not sick of talking about it. So I'm, that's the thing. Like, you have to have an idea that you were like, you are not going to get sick of this idea. It's, it's like, um, I don't know if you, it's like how they say, um, when you're thinking of getting a tattoo, draw it or like have a picture of it and have it somewhere where you see it every day for a year and if after a year you're not sick of seeing it then get the tattoo okay so I don't really subscribe to that and I probably should because now I have like a a lot of (laughs) so like my mom my whole life was very anti-tattoo still is pretty anti-tattoo um and so when I was 19 I got a tattoo and I actually don't hate the tattoo but then it's a it's a book um it's a line from a book and I still love the book, but the author kind of got problematic in the age of Trump. Um, and so that I kind of like feel bad about. Um, right. So, and I've just gotten a lot of other stupid tattoos since. So I think that that's good advice I'm going to take in the future. But in terms of writing. Yes. So this was uh, your- in terms of writing. In terms of writing, just have a book you're super, super passionate about because it's going to be your companion on the road. Was this uh, the only, was this the only book that you wrote, or did we, did you write like other books that you just didn't have as much like passion and love for, and then always came back to surrender yourselves? Yeah, I mean, well, really, it, it, this has been it. This has been the one. Um, but I, I've I come from a world of screenwriting, so I've I'd had I've had you know a TV pilot, you know, that I super loved. I had a series Bible, you know, I had a, I had a whole bunch of stuff that like never really found its way. Yes, I would still say that, that it might end up becoming a book later on, but I probably should have put this away. Like most advice is like, my God, put it away again, like do something else. And I just didn't. And uh, I just, I became, I just was too obsessed with, with this. And I did need to like remove elements of it. You know, what the, what the book is now, the core mystery I mentioned earlier was really a very soft subplot in the rest of this larger way too long story and then I had an agent who rejected me in a wonderful way basically saying like hey you know this is a lot it's it's it's, it's just basically it's tons of work but this one part of the book is really fascinating I kind of wish it was just this and that was around 2017 and at that point I had kind of hit a, a plateau with it my energy went away and and I basically took the next year and I had a bunch of life stuff going on so I moved had a whole life reset. And then I just was like, okay, well, what if I just did that? And I took that six months, restructured it, got rid of a ton, made this subplot, the main thing, expanded it. And then I started querying an agent. And after four years of querying agents, getting nowhere within a week, this one agent just offered on it. So it was one of those things where like, you can put in all the time up front and it can be a shorter wait or, you know, 
you can put it out really quickly, but then you're you're ultimately going to wait the same amount of time, I think, in general. I mean, there, there are miracles that happen. But for me, it was definitely like as soon as I put in all that time and energy and then once I felt like, wow, this is really, really tight, that's when it kind of... And my agent who, um, who offered, uh, he rejected this book like uh, back in 2016. Oh, my so God. They sold his own rejected book back to him. So, yeah, and he's, again, been the biggest champion of this. It was one of those things where like my life changed, his life changed. It was like pre the election. So it was just like everything just changed. And then we had gone through a year and a half and life stuff had happened and he'd had a kid. Like it was just one of these things where like and the and the book was right now. Like I got the book right. So that was that's the long and the short of it. But I think it was just it's one of those things where like the weather was right, both the and it just clicked. And then and then it was about another year of going on sub. So once you once your agent shit up um, you take the manuscript on submission, uh, and then it's basically your agent taking the book to all the editors that they know and pitching it, and they agree to read it. And it's a little more structured at that point in a in a good way, but then there's also a bad way, which is like you sort of know when it's done. And then, unfortunately, Surrender Your Sons had at that point on sub that year had to go through this gauntlet again. Of It's a dark topic that you have to be really, really, really sure about what you're saying about it like why you're going there why you're touching into it's a very very sensitive topic you know I even read your piece on it which which I, mean, I felt was very shown a good light on like <laughs> why like I was like okay well it, it is like a sort of a situation where it's where I do agree that it's important to talk about it but also like make sure before you go to this well that there is a really good reason you're doing that and you're doing so with like the utmost care and so when we went on submission it's just one of those things where you know, in, in queer YA right now, we've had, you know, very tragic stories for a while. And then af- everything after Simon versus the Homo Sapiens Agenda, which became Love, Simon. We love Love, like, Simon. Love, Simon's so good. No, no, it's so good. Um, Riverdale great. and us love Love, Simon. It's amazing. <laughs> John, I'm speaking for you. Yeah, yes, Love, Simon's yes. great. Mm-hmm. Yes, amazing. So, yeah, very excited for Love, Victor coming to Hulu in June. Me too. Um, expanded universe. So, uh, yeah, so again, it's one of those things where it was, Simon came around at the right time where we needed to start feeling real good about ourselves. And, and so that was a choice for me. Cause I, I, I could do, I, I love mystery. I love darker things, but I also wanted to tell queer stories. And so telling just a, everything kind of chill happens, you know, no murders at all. Um, <laughs> kind of story. I was like, well, I don't know. What would I even talk about if, if we get killed? <laughs> And it's real, which is so upsetting. It's real, and it's just like it's so horrific, and it's just so like ludicrous to to even think about. And that's, I think, a big that was a big disconnect for for people as I was trying to get this sold. And the darker things got in society, the more people started understanding that. Oh yeah, maybe I could see someone being this inhuman to another person. So as we went into the administration, I had to really ask myself, okay, like, well, why am I writing this? Am I, am I, first of all, like, am I doing this? Am I doing no harm? Like, are people who have gone through this, am am I doing this to have a salacious, like, ooh, it it gets people's, you know, blood up just to think about it. And it gets people very angry and, and activated. Or, you know, am I doing this? Like, what am I, telling the story about for what am I telling about conversion therapy why am I going to this well you know it's a big ask 
to have, you know, to read a big queer pain book. And that's why I was like, okay, well, I, if I'm going to do this, I really want to make this just a, a victory story, an adventure story. There's dark humor in it. That's another reason. That's my big Buffy thing, too. As they're facing death, they're cracking jokes. It's, it's a defense mechanism. Mm-hmm. So it's um, it's a very Buffy Whedon thing to do. So I really was like, okay, yeah, that's the way in. That's the way to just be like, okay, I'm going to tell the story I want to tell. I want to be respectful to people who have gone through this. It, maybe this is the last thing they could possibly want to hear about right now. Here's why it's important. Here's why. And, it's, and it really is, at first it's about conversion therapy, but it's really about here's how in the worst of times, people can come together and really just like kick the shit out of someone. Like you, you can really just like, you can really just like come together and just defeat the evil in a way that's very satisfying. Cause I think the, it, what we've seen in a lot of great literature that's about conversion therapy, I mean, you have Garrett's memoir, which is a memoir. So it's, it's not going to have maybe the catharsis that I think people maybe wanted from that, which is, um, the book is fabulous. Anybody who saw the movie should at least read the book because it's, 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 there's so many dimensions to it. It's, it's, and he's a great storyteller. It feels like it's reading his diary. It's very intimate. But like, you know, in a movie, you're not going to get that catharsis because they just, they still operate the camp. They're fine. You know, um, yeah. we sort of leave behind everybody. And it's, it's just one of these things where that's real life. And I was like, okay, well, what's the, what's the Goonies version of this mm-hmm. where everybody just gets their, you know, head handed to them at the end of the movie. So I think that's, that's, that, that's really the thing that eventually started really clicking with people when they were considering buying the book to, to publish. And again, it still was a hard sell to mix dark comedy with something so serious. But in the end, that was sort of the thing where I'm like, well, I, I can't tell the story in a, in a dry way. It's just not my voice. So eventually the right thing did happen. That's coming to you. I am so excited. It is literally coming to me, I think, in September. When is your official release date? September 15th. September's the new hot month because so many books have been <laughs> delayed because of uh, Rona. Uh, yeah. So, yeah, a lot of summer books are getting, like, the bump. And, you know, we're all kind of kind of just feeling it out right, right now. But uh, very very lucky, Knockwood, um, September 15th. We have not ever had to – we have not had to bump the date. We are still locked in. September's a nice – Time where we will all socially responsibly be able to go into a bookstore mm-hmm. <laughs> or at least or have at least found some sort of solution to that but yeah mid-september i i can't wait it's, it's probably about four months away yeah will there be a uh, digital version of your book yes there'll be an ebook dandate ebook it's gonna be a command and hardcover and then tbd on my fingers crossed for audiobooks and such an audiobook Ooh. would you would you read your own book for your audiobook I'd love that. I'd say yes in a second if they wanted it. So I did, I did do a, I, I do, I, I did my first reading. I read from the first chapter on my Instagram live a few weeks ago. I've got a theater background. I did all the voices. I read it, <laughs> loved it. People seem to vibe on that. I would absolutely do I that. Always, um, I always like when a, an author can read, I mean, assuming they have a good voice, can read their audiobook. I think yeah. it makes like a big difference because they know the book so well you're able to just like really hit those moments. Yeah. I mean, again, I have such respect for like every, anybody who reads an audiobook because that is, you got to get into, you got to get into the heart of it. You have, you're a one person show, especially with this book, which is just a big, there's, there's 12 campers. There's about 12 adult characters. I mean, there's, there's it's a big cast and everyone's got a different voice and accent. Oh, that's so, fine. Uh, I want to yeah, say, yeah, character wise, I feel like I, 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 
everything I watch has the gay character, like, you know, Kevin yeah. Keller or something. Mm-hmm. And I and like mm-hmm. your book's gonna have twelve. It's such a spectrum yeah. of characters. It's a spectrum. That's I mean, and that was a big part of like my appeal to this was like because I think when you see a show where it's just the one gay character or, you know, queer character or even if there's a few of them, it's just there's so much expectation put on that one character to represent everybody to cover. And I would, I, I was like, well, no, there is no one experience here. So, you know, that's always a bit, I mean, as, as, as long as people keep buying them, I will keep making uh, queer ensembles where everybody is, <laughs> you know, you get different, you know, you have just, you have different experiences, ages, you know, genders, gender identities, races, you know, where you, where you have just these, different ways of intersecting with your queerness and I just think that's really important and I and I love the whole slate of, of queer YA right now in general because you have such great diverse authors just telling these stories that have just never been told or so rarely get the kind of face time that they deserve it's been boom times for that so it's just it's really wonderful to see it's really wonderful to get to be a part of that energy right now in the bunker I'm curious if there's anyone at the camp who's a camper who like believes in the program or like wants to go. Cause I do, I think that was something in boy erased where there are his character kind of decides to go. He's not as like exactly. vehemently. Yeah. I was, is that something that you wanted to include in the book or was there a reason why maybe you didn't include it? If, if not. Yeah. He's taken to the Island in chapter one. So we were at the camp the whole time. Mm-hmm. So I, I was like, okay, well, the arc here is we know our guy, our main person is he's chaotic good. He's <laughs> going to just hit that camp day one and just start causing trouble. And he's mouthing off to people. You know, to contrast that, there is, there's a character who is, this is universally everybody's favorite character. There's a love interest for Connor at the camp who is really this den mother guy who's really been there for about a year. He believes in it. His, his family kind of comes from this religious background and he's a character who means so much to me, just a real sweetheart. And it's not just him. There's a big part of the thing where, yes, everybody who is there, you know, you, and you see this in different shades. His name is Marcos. And so you see with Marcos, you see these different shades. At first, he just seems to be the snitch. Like he's like, if, if, you're, if your wrist is dangling, he's telling on you. You know, like there's, there, there is an element right away that puts him at odds with Connor where it's like, okay, well, here's this guy who's like absolutely in the tank here, and I, I can't deal with this. And then as the story goes on, you know, you do get these different shades where you can see how, and at a big point in the book that's made is, it's not really about be straight, it's about control. It's mm-hmm. about do this because we say so. Um, so you see that with Marcos in that, is that he is trying so hard to control himself in every possible way and a big part of the book becomes convincing him to go along with this because he knows that the big crisis facing all of them that nobody really is acknowledging except for him is that, okay, we're going to escape home. Home sent us here. Where are we going? Are we all going to be on the street? Like, I mean, that's, that's the sort of thing where it's like, we have to go through and do this or else who will, where will we live? Where will we go? What is the plan after the big, fun, yeehaw, dramatic escape? We go home and we hit the street. And some of these kids are 12 years old. 
what are we going to do? So that's a big crisis in that. So I think it's, and it was important for me to include the voice of somebody who is part of the program. So you see, so it's not all just like everybody's, you know, not affected by it. Cause you have people who have been there for months and months and months. And eventually the brainwash does start to hit you, or at least it's a, it's a coping mechanism to sort of survive there. But really just to provide that voice of like, it's really not going to be that simple for them. It's not going to be, it's going to be a nice fun escape, but it's also going to be, a, it's a big crisis facing them. It's, I mean, it's for most escape stories. When you escape, there's some place to go. And these kids do not have that necessarily. Oh, that's, yeah. That is something I was thinking about when you said there were no like parent heroes or like straight friends on a boat, like rowing into the island. So yeah. I mean, that's the Rosemary's baby thing where it's like, okay, she can escape the apartment, go to the doctor. Oh no, the doctor's in on it. Like, how do you break out of that? There's this, um, uh, I believe there's Cheryl this. went home and threatened her mother and then was fine. And then yeah. She did the musical the next week. I watched, the, I watched the ARCS episode. Yeah, so it, she, yeah, she, there's that version. There's that, that is one way to do it. Yeah, I mean, the famous gay conversion therapy storyline where then you do Karen musical and you come in with a candelabra and threaten your mom covered in pig's blood. The classic Listen. story we've right. seen. We've, all, we've seen it. It's too cliche it. at this point, honestly. I hope it's not a new book. If I've seen it once, I've seen it a thousand times. Right. Exactly. Uh, yeah, so... Um, no, yeah, so, uh, yeah, to that, that's definitely something where, um, yeah, I mean, it's just, it's a lot of the, I mean, and that's just great, that's just great fun drama to write, which is just, um, it's not just the high stakes, it's also, I mean, there's all these different, it's not as easy as just do this, because then the story's over. Yeah. Uh, and so, I mean, this is a book where, I mean, up through the ending of the epilogue, um, there's there's twists there's unexpected stuff there's stuff to get super settled and i just i just love writing types of books like this because it's just so much fun i mean i i mean people who write um contemporary romances like that's their thing they love it i love it i love reading it but okay. writing yeah. it i just i keep <laughs> wanting to every time i've written a book where it's like oh they follow like it's, it's always i inject some cliffhanger twist like something into a secret box uh, <laughs> they thought about the murder. Exactly. Murder yeah. Right. Yeah. Oh, I fell in love with this person. Oh no, he's dead. Oh no, there's a key on him. Where's the key go? Yeah. Honestly, that sounds great. Yeah, keep going with that. Let's Caitlin's run with like, that. Hold on. Where's, right, the, where's the rest of the, the plot? <laughs> Where does the key lead? <laughs> what happens that's, now? That's Lynchian. That's definitely Lynchian. Yeah, Mahalan Drive. That's a huge. I mean, yeah. even probably more than Twin Peaks. It's just Mahalan Drive. How influential that was on me. Um, and, I love that's uh, my favorite one of Lynch's movies. I love Drive. Yeah, that's it's funny. It's it's I love it so much that um, I took great pains to and most I would say ninety nine point nine nine percent of the readers um, will never experience this. It will just be my secret. Book, is that Surrender Your Sons takes place in the same universe as <laughs> Wait, so really? I've, I've included Easter eggs throughout that prove that it's happening in the same that's in the same so world. good I was such a nerd I was like I was like ooh like this this will happen here and this will happen here and then someone will like, like make a four phone or five call places. it's like Naomi Watts answers the phone in your book exactly hi okay. yeah it's all a dream no it's, yeah. it's your cousin Beverly Watts 
<laughs> just checking in to see how your gay conversion therapy camp is going. Exactly <laughs> to right. Get back. So that's definitely because I mean that's one of those things where like I mean No Home Drive is a great queer story where I, mm-hmm. I felt like it was something that when I so I first saw when I was coming out I, I don't think I was fully out yet and that had such a profound effect on me and I have a this, I could speak at length this probably a different podcast about I believe that. Uh, my reading of Mulholland Drive is that it's a metaphor for the closet. Everything that takes place in that movie is her waking out of <clears throat> closet itself. Um, and it's all because it, uh, the emotions that it brings up in me are um, everything I experience um, closeted. Because when you're closeted, for me, it was so much of it. So much of my pre out time feels um, there's a there's a there's a there's a um, a lack of awareness around that time. Like I was me, but I wasn't me. And I and I and it's I think a big misunderstanding is that like everybody who's closeted is super damn aware of it and just yeah. not saying. And that's not. It's way more interesting than that. It's way more horrific than that. Like you're you're sort of some people. I for me, I was mostly unaware that I had suppressed it into to, to, to such a degree. That it was very, it was very Mulholland Drive, where I did have this persona where I was myself. But then there was a moment that was eye-opening enough that the realization of that alone was traumatic. And so I, that's why, and it happened around the same time as this movie came out. So I, I have a very fond place in my heart for it, where it was this great queer love story tragedy thing, where I, where I don't mind the tragedy, I don't mind the, you know, the, the kill your gaze. I don't think it's a kill your gaze trope thing. I can kind of pinpoint when it is or and when it's just like no we're just telling a story that happened to be tragic and it includes these people and i i found it to be very prophetic and really really spoke to the to the you know because in in the movie she's there there's this sort of sense of awareness and not awareness like you know something about what's going on is is not correct yeah Uh, but you can't really put your finger on it and then as the thing goes on it starts to get more and more bizarre until it's unignorably not correct. And then you understand and it's horrible in the end. That's my big nerdy thesis on Mulholland Drive. Honestly, like you should have like a PhD just for that thesis. Cause like that's oh, fascinating to me, but I'll you know, it. <laughs> yeah, you're, yeah, sure. I can give you an <laughs> honorary PhD, <laughs> but you, um, you got one from the Riverdale Register University. But, yeah, but first recipient, actually. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No one else got one, just you. It's interesting though that you say that about kind of almost like I don't I don't know if dissociative is like the right word, but it is. A, yeah, a friend of mine who recently came out as trans, they described something very very similar, where it's mm. not that they always knew they were trans and didn't. I think that's like the thing, right? That you assume that someone yeah. is um, keeping it a secret, and I guess they just oh, knew and. Yeah, I think that's fascinating. You know, like my my parents, like when I would talk to them about it, I think they were always like, "Oh, do they confide in you about it?" And I was like, "Well, it's not that they confided in me and and didn't. It wasn't like a big secret. I think it was something that there were all these pieces that then they they figured out for themselves. Mm-hmm. And I think that's really interesting because I don't think that's a narrative that we see a lot." Um, in like a show like Riverdale, for example, where you have like Cheryl talking to Tony in the movie theater, why where they go to see Love Simon, which right. is 
you know, a movie that is very much, I think like the opening line is like, my name is Simon and I have friends and I have, yeah, I'm just like you. Yeah. Yeah. I love Love Simon. I really do, but it's listen. It's so good. I mean, it's, it's so cute. <laughs> love Simon is not the the time and place to get into the like dissociative nature. Yeah, no, <laughs> no, it's really not. It's 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 not that kind of a film. But it's, we're here to put it on and have a good time. That's yeah, that is exactly. absolutely okay. In the bunker. The thing is about. <laughs> The Cheryl plotline is that I think that just speaking, it's almost like the opposite of what we were just saying about you not realizing that you were queer as opposed to knowing you're queer deeply and then wanting to suppress it or hide it. And it's interesting how I've never seen, I've seen two narratives on teen dramas and I'm a big teen drama person. So there's a, there's one narrative where it's like Marissa from the OC. And I don't know if you want to necessarily call Marissa from the OC like a queer character or not, but um, where Olivia Wilde shows up and like suddenly they're making out. And then she's like, oh, I have a girlfriend now. And like, that's like the whole thing. It's like, oh, cool. Like, I guess I didn't realize that I could be attracted to women, but like now I am. Or yeah. you have, and which is fine. And I'm not saying that the OC you know, was queer rating with Olivia Wilde, but I think that like everyone knows Olivia Wilde is like super hot. So, (laughs) so like, I think that there's that narrative. And then I think there's the more common one, which is Cheryl tearfully coming out to Tony. Like I've been living with this for so long, Mm -hmm. et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. I mean, both exist. Like it's, it's one of those things where like, it's just, it's not going to be one, one experience. And I think for me, I've always kind of been drawn to those, ones that are slightly more dissociative, like Mulholland Drive, um, uh, on a smaller scale, uh, Willow and Buffy, uh, mm-hmm. when she realizes, like, it's one of those things where in season three, it was planted because her, like, doppelganger, vampire, you know, freewheeling self, you know, a completely uninhibited is, um, is basically expressing her queerness openly and, like, and, you know, ordinary timeline willow is uh like super like what the fuck you know she's really <laughs> really thrown by it um so uh you know and then like later in season four when she meets tara like it, it is that gradual dawning it's not a, it's just suddenly like oh i i really care about you and i don't understand this but okay and then now you're, and then you're just in it um and I, I and it's in a weird way it's i've also i have the most messed up like queer root experiences so it, it was one of the things where the the book that like helped me come out the most is rules of attraction by Brady oh Spinelli. my god that's who i have on my rib cage <laughs> oh my that's, god what yeah so was, it's, are we bringing this full circle to your, we're bringing to your it full circle. yeah my problematic fame Brady yes yeah. i fucking love <laughs> Brady Stanellis. i'm sorry i know he's saying some problematic shit on twitter listen he's he listen he's he likes to hear himself talk he likes people getting upset like he likes yeah. that i'm i yeah. don't like that about him i think what he's saying <laughs> is very dangerous and he needs to stop however i'm not like oh he needs to learn that i'm gonna teach him a right the more like, you try to calm down brett right <laughs> like, i mean if you've read one of his books like i mean they're all about like the most dreadful people yes um, yes and, i mean i for yeah. me just really quick because we're talking about ready Stanellis, it's like my my secret that it's not a secret i've talked about how much i like really love his work um for a really long time but like 
my my thing is that when everybody was trying to ban American Psycho, like the movie, like Gloria Steinem, like who I do respect, oh, right. trying to ban that movie um, because it was bad towards women and and it was violent towards women, which I actually don't even think it really is that violent towards women compared to how it's equally violent towards men. But people kind of assume that because he's writing from the perspective of a misogynistic, um, toxically masculine Mm -hmm. character that he must believe that. But I think that if you like read the book, you're like, oh no, like this is like very much mocking Patrick Bateman. And if you can't really understand that, but well, then I'm you obsessed. just get into the whole like <laughs> artist like I mean mm-hmm. cause then you get into the whole like I mean so we can only write about I, I just I don't know like it's 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 the thing where it's like well I, I I write about super I mean the when people read this book I don't want people to be like oh well he really said it's like no that's what a person who runs a conversion therapy camp would, would say and think right right you know, of course uh, yeah I I through my characters I end up saying some really messed up stuff that I hope people would just go what he's saying is that's not the right, you know, that's yeah, the sort of thing. Yeah. So, I mean, I get it. I think it was just one of those things where it was like, you know, that was definitely a, you know, a time. And I think movies have a way of taking source material and really gonzoing it to the point mm-hmm. where they maybe lose a little bit of like the tongue in cheek stuff and are just doing this like splatter house. My thing is I really don't like hugging and learning movies and shows I, I kind of like yeah. it when the characters are more nasty <laughs> rotted people even Don't if they're not like Katie murderers <laughs> yeah, there <laughs> we go it's a hugging show <laughs> exactly I mean that was my big, big thing with, with Seinfeld which is they, their their rule was no hugging no learning <laughs> and I was such a Seinfeld <laughs> and I just was like that's how I feel about it you know very big props to, to, to Glee and Love Simon for pushing the queer conversation forward but the thing that helped me except me the most was Paul and Sean and the whole uh, uh, rules of attraction thing where they're just like, I mean, they're, they're not the type of people you want to be, but it was just presented in such a, they have their own problems way and they're gay and, and like one of them's not acknowledging it. It's really messy and messed up. That just reflected more my experience than I'm this cutie patootie. I will sweater on and I'm meeting my other boyfriend in the hallway. Like I'm like, that never happened in my life and my school and my friend's lives. Like it was, I'm happy it's happening now, hopefully, but it was like the thing that was like, yes, you're reflecting my life is just, I don't know. You have this really charming guy and he's really not paying attention to me and he's kind of pretending I don't exist, but then he's super into it and then he's not. Like it just felt way more like acknowledging of what was really happening in my life. Yeah, no, that's actually fascinating that I think that that's the other thing that I think, and John and I actually, I you may have cut this out of our last podcast, I'm not sure, but. John and I kind of had like a conversation about this. Like what, like at what point. Oh, that was in it. It's in the episode. Oh, it is. Okay. I went on a really big rant. (laughs) Just the idea that, you know, we kind of touched upon this before that for so long we have talked or we have seen portrayals of queer characters who um, they suffer a lot that now seeing them not suffer is sort of like considered a win, but also Mm-hmm. is it almost is it almost like too easy I guess right. or maybe not easy but but at what point is it like we have to have like, these two characters be in love and like happy and like right. that's great or is it like let's like show like a little bit of the realism of right. 
everyone's lives as opposed to even just like the queer experience where things aren't always like how you can't have a lot of people. This is an issue. I think I've actually, this is a different rant than what John and I were talking about and I'm losing track of my thought process, but I've decided that we're going with this. I was talking I'm right the other there day. with you. I'm loving this. <laughs> Amazing. I was talking the other day with a friend about pretty little liars and about how, I don't know if you've ever watched the show, but on the show, John knows how much I love the show. Do I love the show, John? What yeah. show? Pretty Little Liars. Uh, I've never heard you talk about it before. Yeah. So I'm obsessed. <laughs> with, I'm obsessed with that show. But basically on Pretty Little Liars, there's a character named Emily. I think eventually she identifies as a lesbian, but she's not out of the closet in the first episode, but she's in love with this girl who has since gone missing. It's a whole thing. Allison. And eventually... Emily falls in love with Allison. Allison and her, like, flirt and kiss. But then Allison's like, get away from me. Very Sean Bateman. But then by the end of the series, they are in love, like, having a having twins together. It's so, like, ridiculously <laughs> cutesy and nice. Yeah. And then, of course, the spinoff happens. And Shay Mitchell, who plays Emily, doesn't join the spinoff. And they break up. But fans were, like, outraged that they didn't get this endgame ship and I think a lot of people felt very betrayed by the creator who as it happens is a lesbian with a wife and kids <laughs> and a lot of people I think felt very betrayed like how could you do this to like our queer couple like how could you break them you up? finally like, have a happily ever after and you break mm-hmm. them up and right? I think it's yeah and I'm like I mean I couldn't agree less mm. with that honestly because it just felt then you're just giving the two the only really queer characters on that show, like an ending that's not really even realistic. I mean, both of them having, yeah. I mean, that show literally like Emily was impregnated against her will with Allison's eggs. So like, it's oh. like, it's a fucked up situation <laughs> as is. Sorry. I spoiled that for you, but it sounds like they belong together. Yeah. Right. I, I do want to say it was like, fucked. <laughs> what you're talking about is kind of happening on Riverdale because ever since Cheryl and Tony did start dating, that relationship has never been in jeopardy once. Even though so many bad things have happened that really should have put them right. in jeopardy. Things, like there was one episode where they broke up and they got back together the next episode. But for the most part, it's like they won't they won't even touch it. And is that also bad if you're right. scared to do anything dramatic with your queer characters and i think at that point you just you really lose creative fun i mean i i it's it's a great push-pull because i mean again we've been starved for these representations for so long that they have to be everything to everyone and nobody wants a bad thing to happen uh you know but it's, it's i think what you're always striving for whether it's a tragedy or a comedy or a romance is authenticity no matter who's writing it or, or all that, you know, just I think the main thing is just like, are you telling a story that rings true with authenticity? Um, and if you're telling a queer breakup story, queer breakups have a different, unique flavor to them that probably, you know, heterosexual breakups do not have. And what are you, you know, like what specific type of insight can you give into that? Um, and, and I think whether, I think we are seeing something that there was so much queer tragedy and pain for so long there had to be this great sea change, you know, to push back against it, where you have, um, you know, these, these great, you know, squeaky rom-coms that are, again, great and serving a fabulous purpose. And I hope they're around forever because, you know, a lot of people just 
taste-wise, do prefer rom-coms in general. And in general, like if, if they're, you know, I know queer people who want their story super gritty and some people who are just like, listen, life is stressful enough. I really need this to just, I need to go into this knowing that there's going to be not any bullshit happening by the end mm-hmm. of it. And I, it's stressing me out. Like I, and both are valid. So I think the main, I think that the happy medium we are hopefully approaching, Surrender Your Sons as a small part of that is something where I go into this book, page one, there's an author's note that just says, this is going to be a story about queer pain. It's also going to be a story about queer victory. Kind of basically saying, you will be very, there will be a catharsis for you at the end. You are not going to go through this and I'm not going to say, and then they were all killed, like at the end. Like, it's, it's, you're not, I'm not, I'm just like, Spoilers. anybody who's like wigging out right now with the book in the hands at Barnes & Noble, like, just if you get it and you read it, just trust me. I kind of, I frame it like, um, like a like a like how they do Disney park rides sort of like mm-hmm. before you get on this ride, if you have a heart condition, please you know if you have, if you're yeah. pregnant like blah, 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 you're gonna get jostled around. There's gonna be this. You're gonna get wet. You know like there's like I kind of go through. It's kind of my own little fun trigger warning thing. I'm just like listen, we're gonna talk about this. We're gonna talk about this. Please trust me. You're in very good hands. Like you're gonna have a good catharsis moment. There's gonna be bittersweet. There's gonna be this and that. Now that that's out of the way, if you want to proceed, here we go. And I think that's kind of, in general, as a, as a queer person consuming entertainment, that's what I'd like to see is just authenticity. Like if you're going to tell a queer tragedy, make sure it's telling me, telling me a new insight, you know, because like we have a million stories. We don't just have this one story. So there's a million stories. So why shouldn't there be an everything's fine and everything's this? And I think when you, the trouble starts when you start to enforce certain things. And a lot of times you'll have, stories where people you'll start to see people sort of try to almost mandate that it be I mean you'll have some editors say I am only accepting the sunny stories and mm-hmm. then if they're right they're the publisher but also like I mean in general we, we know those sell a little bit more um so it's like from a sales perspective there's that um but I think in general even if you're telling a sunny story there are unique struggles within a queer relationship that, you know, if you're watching, you've got mail, there's struggles in that, you know, it's still a very heartwarming movie that like everybody loves push and play on, but you know, there are still like those, those like unique struggles there and they don't necessarily have to be about queer identity, but I think incorporating that, those given circumstances into that, where even if you do have an accepting family, there's some other hurdle you maybe have to like figure out or, you know, like even just in my own life, you know, I'm married and been married for uh, six years and we're trying to start a family right now. And we have had no, nobody in our family is like, what? And I don't think so. And this and that, like, but we have had support across the board. However, the second you start getting into that process, it's immediately you're unpacking everything you've ever gone through and yeah. you're unpacking, well, my straight brother didn't have to go through this and blah, 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 and now I'm being interrogated about this. You know, you start, there's there's little sort of moments of truth to put in everywhere. And I think the more people do that, the better. But I think it, it really just becomes a problem when you feel like a showrunner or a, a, a director is overproducing the storyline or not doing it because that's what the story demands and that's what the nature of the characters would have happened. But they're looking at it from a marketing point of view, like, well, we can't do that. Everyone's going to poop their pants if we, Mm -hmm. if we do this to them, you know, and that sort of thing. So, 
you know, I, you know, I, it's just, it's a, we're learning. It's a very organic process. You know, we're telling these stories for the first time, literally ever. Some of them, you know, or, or people are experiencing this on, on this massive a scale where there's actually a commercial demand for it. We've, it's, it's, it's new, it's new. So you're going to have lots of trial and error. And I think the way forward for me is always, you know, a little of both. Let's try everything. Let's make sure everything kind of gets touched on. And I think that's the, that's the hope is to get us everywhere so that it can take the expectations off of us. In the bunker. Have you seen the show Hollywood on Netflix? Yet? <laughs> it's queued up. I haven't seen it yet. Okay, so I don't want to spoil too much for you, but I was interviewing Ryan Murphy, which is, it's just, it's seven episodes, but it's kind of um, revisionist history a little bit. And one of the things that when I spoke to Ryan Murphy about it was he was like, no one gets a sad ending in this show. And the show yeah. is Rock Hudson, I guess, is specifically the character I'm referring to. But I think most people yeah. know that Rock Hudson died of AIDS in like 1985. And until he like basically came out as, as having... Um, AIDS no one knew he was gay and so that was his like coming out moment which is like very tragic when you think about it but he he's on the show and he has a bit of a different trajectory I think I love it it, yeah it's honestly it's really good you'll see yeah it's really good that's my I don't want to again be so great I I mean it's not to I mean I'm I've been on a bit of a Tarantino kick but um, I know I mentioned Inglorious Bastards but you know that that's a bit of a revisionist history Mm -hmm. there obviously at the end and less then, violent uh, with this one <laughs> less violent and then you know i mean and then you get once upon a time in hollywood which is which has a pretty big Still, revisionist moment in it yeah <laughs> um which i again some people i i don't really honestly i try not to even listen to people because i'm just like i i i just i like what i like and mm-hmm. i was very moved by it i was very i loved it and i just thought why not why not do that version because i mean again it's just let's see something new we're seeing, mm-hmm. we're seeing stuff a lot. I, I'm, that's a big, that's probably the reason I'm most biggest reason I'm, I'm going to watch Hollywood is because I'm like, I want to see, cause I love like Tinseltown of yesteryear stuff. Like yeah. that's my, my air. I love it. I know everything about it. So I'm like, well, let's see something that's like super unexpected. It's really interesting. I think it's, it's a really unique take on what could have been I could have easily seen Ryan Murphy and co doing just a straight like let's tell Rock Hudson's story and let's tell like um yeah. Catherine Hepburn or Cary Grant who are actually not in it but you know stuff like that and uh I think this was like a good take I think it, it's very relevant to today because it made me realize that the problems with representation that we have today are the same ones that we've had forever like right. you know we're almost just like not saying the things that they just said like they would say you know horribly racist things like no we can't have like a black woman open a picture who's gonna go see it and like we won't say that today probably in executive rooms but maybe we I mean I won't obviously but you know I'm sure someone will but definitely it is not as common as it was back then so I think that's the motivations really- are the same. The language what they, people use evolves. They find different mm-hmm. ways to make sure that people don't get certain jobs, to make sure that it's really led by that. I mean, we were, we're seeing that a lot with, you know, just, um, I mean, everywhere. Like, who gets these positions of control, positions of power, um, you know, who is sort of systemically not allowed, even if nobody's actively doing that. 
Um, a lot of Hollywood runs on unpaid internships who can afford that, mostly comfortable white people. Yes, um, yes. I think that that's a huge thing. I don't yeah, think people yeah. talk about that. But that's I what remember what Hollywood too. was all about. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think it's fascinating when you really start up the ground floor. Like, you realize, oh, shit. Like, I remember, I'm sorry, it cost me, like, I think $3,000 to work for free one summer. Uh, like yeah. that's crazy to yeah. work for I mean, free. I've been, I've been out in LA for years. I, I've worked so many. I I was an intern for this one company. I swear to God, for a year, I was an assistant. I was an executive mm-hmm. assistant, and I worked absolute for none money. There wasn't it's even like a lunch insane. stipend with nothing. And it's when crazy. I and when I got to the end of that year, and I felt that was so invaluable. You know, you get to that point. Um, and then they just got a new free intern for a year. It's really, it's, I mean, it's not just Hollywood publishing does this as well. That's why, I mean, if you look at the, the, who the gatekeepers are in publishing, it's the pie charts are grim. So, I mean, that is the thing that's, and that's, again, you get into, we're getting political here. That is kind of (laughs) what happens when you set up systems that are built on endless free labor and there is no social safety net. So that's what you're going to. You're, you're, you know, that's what they say when they're saying like, this is like systemic where it's like, you can't break out. This is not one person going, oh, well, you can't put that person in front of the camera, blah, blah, blah. But it's like, you've created enough systems that it's just, it can't be done. It can't be, it's not sustainable. It's not a, if you're not paying a, a full living salary for this thing, then they can't do it. Because they yeah. got bills to pay. In the bunker. This is a fascinating conversation. I could honestly talk about it for like another two hours, but so John doesn't have to edit. Please don't make me edit a three hour <laughs> I was long podcast. I can see John just getting more and more like, mm. oh, guys, look at the time. No, no, no. It's honestly, this has been amazing. But um, usually we end our, our podcast with talking about like the one thing that we're looking forward to um, or one thing we're watching. A piece of right entertainment now. that speaks to you at this moment. Could be anything. Mm. Could be book, podcast, movie, video game. <sighs> Well, a show that I'm revisiting that I grew up with, and this will, this will, this is, it's funny to say I grew up with the show, but I did. I'm rewatching uh, the Larry Sanders show on HBO. It was about 1983 to 1988 is probably the first, I don't know if someone will correct me, but like, I think it was probably one of the first, if not the first scripted show HBO ever did. Um, oh, it basically had it, it had its series finale right before Sex and the City and Sopranos aired. So really it was sort of like the prologue to that great HBO era. It is a six, six seasons fabulous show. You can get it on HBO Go. It's still there. It's still relevant. It's, um, and it's basically, it takes place behind the scenes at a, at, of a Jay Leno type talk show. Yeah. Where's that actor? Uh, uh, like... Gar- Gary Shandling's the main one. Jeffrey Tambor is, right. um, Hey now. The, hey now. Yeah, exactly. Hank Kingsley. He's the, uh, Ed McMahon type sidekick, and then you've got Rick Torn, who is fantastic. Mm-hmm. Who people know him from Jack Jack's Boss and Dirty Rock, and a whole bunch of other and stuff. Dodgeball, Dodgeball, Dodgeball. And I um, thought of immediately. If people have seen Defending Your Life, he's great in that. Mm. Uh, Bruce's, uh film, I, it's, that's on HBO right now. Super loved it. Watched it the other night. But it's a, it's just a great. Um, it's like HBO's first like R-rated comedy. It's, it's kind of like for fans of Veep. I would say would love it because it's very like 
funny, scripted, biting, everybody insulting each other in the office. It reminds me of, uh, kind um, of shows. Curb Your Enthusiasm also. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Curb and uh, Beep owe a lot to Larry Sanders. A lot of people do. And it's, it's got who, who's uh, Judd Apatow's first big gig. Oh, um, really? This. Yeah. Um, so right now, I don't know why. I'm, so it was one of those things where, like, my fa- so my family and I, you know, I grew up in a very supportive household. So, I mean, like, I, I was watching, I was allowed to watch R-rated stuff as, as long as I, like, because they could tell I was very into it in, like, an artistic sort of way. Like, I, yeah. I, I came from it from a passion point of view. I wasn't like, yeah, I want to watch this R-rated. Like, it was <laughs> or like, hey, here's this, like, well-regarded. I'm 13. I'm like, I'm like, this is a well-regarded show. I want to see it. So, and we'd watch it and we all watched it together as a family, basically. So it's one of those things where, like, it's a, it's a very, I mean, it, it wrapped up. It had its final episode around the same time as Seinfeld and you have a lot of great celebrity cameos David Duchovny does a great cameo bit on it um it's it's a great slice of life from 90s Hollywood it's great inside baseball we were in the middle of Illinois we're not connected to the business in any way still loved it and I think just right now I I just really needed something very biting because you know book stuff is going great but you know in general the quarantine is not everyone's favorite not my favorite um not your favorite i get that so it's, there's a lot of like angry emotions and just seeing it just you know beep and larry sanders this is the type of show i really needed i needed like a funny everybody's dropping f-bombs on each other and just venting their anger on each other kind of show and that's for me right now is, is really doing it to me it's interesting how some people go one way and some people go the other like for me i found myself looking towards happier things or even or like less biting things when I would normally look for maybe more biting things. Interesting. Yeah. And I wonder, yeah, I think it's like, I'm like, I need a safer show yeah. as opposed to like what I usually would go to, which would be like murder and like true crime podcasts yeah. and like all that fun stuff too. So I only have one sliding lever. It just goes Dark, dark, darker, 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 darker. Rare. I just keep going. Like, there's no funny dark. There's no or... backwards. Yeah, just funny dark, or is this just like depressing dark? Yeah, that was another thing. Is I, I, that was like a tradition in my home. In my home, Christmas Eve, we go into. We were in rural Illinois, and then we go into the city in Chicago for that. And at Christmas Eve, I would always like pick the movie we'd go see, and it was, and it just became a tradition where everybody would laugh at me. I would pick the most depressing. I think I picked like <laughs> 21 grams one year. Oh my god! Um, it's like made everybody watch that movie, which is just like you can't even like bring yourself. Speaking of Naomi, what sobbing all the time, which is great for that. Yep, that's my that's my mode. I love it. Well, Adam, where can everybody find you? Uh, you can find me on Twitter at the Adam Sass, and you can find me on Instagram at it's Adam Sass. You can also go to adamsassbooks.com slash pre-order where you can pre-order Surrender Your Son. Learn more about it there. Get some snippets from it and place your pre-orders uh, and keep those receipts because I have a very interesting pre-order campaign coming in June. So anybody who will pre-order or has already pre-ordered can uh, get some goodie bag stuff. Nice. Okay, so... I ordered it over Amazon. Does that count? You have to keep that receipt. Just yeah, just okay, keep that cool. email. Yep, awesome. exactly right. So, but oh, that'll cool, be cool. that'll be like a Pride Month, probably deeper into into then. But uh, no, I it just it's, it's gonna be it's gonna be a good time. Yeah, it's anybody anybody's already done a pre-order and then will. It's just supposed to give a big push. Amazing. Well, I'm thrilled. Um, John, where can they find you? 
you can find me on Twitter at John Patton. You can also find me on my blog, The Catcher in the Rye. Rye is spelled W-R-Y. Well, you can find me at Riley Tweets on Twitter, R-E-I-L-L-Y Tweets. Um, and you can find our podcast at Instagram, The Riverdale Register Podcast. Um, maybe we'll have some fun treats for you guys over there. Maybe not. You'll see. <laughs> maybe. I don't know. Maybe. <laughs> maybe. Um, amazing. Great. Well, over and out, River Vixens.